as we walk through, we're now finishing up an entire section in Corinthians. He's going to bring all of his arguments from chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3. Paul is going to bring them all to a head, and he's going to do some some arguing. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to say this. He's going to do some masterful arguing and show the Corinthian church just how unprepared they are to have this argument with him. Uh, If you are just tuning in with us, so what has been happening is that Paul planted this church in Corinth. They did phenomenal, and for 18 months, Paul discipled them day in and day out and shared his life with them, and they grew, and they were a phenomenal church, and then he leaves, and they start drifting back towards their Greek, uh, or towards their Greek upbringing, their pagan upbringing, And so they begin to then accuse Paul that he's not wise, that he's not a good apostle, and that they don't need to listen to him anymore. They're going to do things their own way. And so Paul writes them a letter back, and he says, interesting, let's have a few discussions. And so he just explains to them uh, the gospel and and that God has blessed them, that they are very wise in Christ. And then now he's kind of showing them just how foolish their argument has been. And then in chapters 4, Pastor Lance is going to preach that next week. Chapter 4, he's going to really get serious with them, as Lance says, turns up the heat. And then chapter 5, he's going to humiliate them and call out sin in the church. (laughs) And so it's going to be great. It's a wild ride, guys. I hope you're ready for it. But today we finish the first three chapters where he kind of brings everything to a close in regards to this argument versus godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 18 through 23. <clears throat> we were working out some tech, some audio issues with my mic. Can everyone hear me clearly or am I echoey? That is so wild. That's what JJ said. It sounds awesome. I feel like there's three people talking right up here, but as long as you can hear me, then that's all that matters. So read with me. We're going to read, since it's a short passage, let's read the whole thing and then we'll go back and work through three major themes that we see in this passage. But verse 18 begins, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders. For everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It's a phenomenal short passage, and what we'll see as we unpack this, Lord willing, is that Paul is now turning all the arguments of the Corinthians upside down on them and brings it to bear for them to uh, recognize the folly of what they've been battling with. And so, but we can look back at verse 18, and let's start right there. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. This word deceive, <clears throat> this is a word that we use in our, in our day and age all the time. 
right, is, is deceiving. What it means here biblically, like thinking about this, it means to mislead or to cause someone to, I love this word, erroneously arrive at the truth. And so this is to deceive here. Paul is saying, let no one deceive himself. And it's a singular there. So each one of you, each one of the members in the Corinth church, and each one of the members today, it is our responsibility to make sure that we are not deceived from getting to the truth. And so he's telling them, let no one mislead themselves and let no one have an erroneous arrival at the truth, meaning that you, you just missed it. And so what's taking place, and I love that he says this, the commentator, I've been reading this excellent commentary as I prep for these messages, and I learned several really helpful things this week. Uh, but one of them is he starts off with this kind of a rhetorical, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he's wise, well, it's the whole purpose of the letter, is that they think they're so wise that they are smarter than Paul the apostle, and that he's wrong, that he's a bad preacher, and that they don't need to listen to his teaching anymore. And so it's this hilarious, like, if anyone thinks he's wise, if anyone's smart listening to that letter, they're going to go, uh, he's talking about me. And so he says, don't let yourself deceive yourself. So don't mislead yourself and don't have errors as you move towards the truth. And so what's, what's really going on here? Let no one deceive himself. If anyone of you thinks that he is wise, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. See, the, the Corinthians were battling a problem of believing that their spiritual or that their worldly wisdom was achieving for them a spiritual superiority, okay? They believed that they were better than, not just Paul, but as you go back to the original argument, it says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and then the other said, I follow Christ. So what you had is you had the good teachings of the gospel, and then a bunch of Christians kind of parceled that out, and they were like, if you're with me and my crew, very similar to political parties today, <laughs> if you're with me and my crew, you're smart. If you're not, you're not smart. Okay, we still got kids in the room, so just fill in that word differently. But, and so this is what's going on, and Paul says, if any of you thinks that you're wise, let him become a fool. I'm reading this book, it's, a, it's the Red Rising Saga of, of awesome, it's like the greatest fiction novels I've ever read in my entire life. I love it. It's like the only books I've ever read in my entire life, by the way. Um, but they do this trick, it's like this war fiction, and they do this trick, they put these things called psycho spikes in your mind, and as you're an enemy of one of the, the nations, and they capture you, they're gonna set these psycho spikes off in your head, and you don't remember who you are, and then they train you to be a warrior for their army. It's a really cool process. And, and I'm like, so is that what Paul is saying? Is that what Paul is saying to the Corinthians? Is he saying that, hey, if, if anyone thinks that he's wise, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. Do you need to sign up for like an online master's class to forget everything you've ever known? No, that's, that's not what he's saying. When he's talking about becoming a fool, he's going back to chapter 2 where he says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved by it. And so what he's saying is that you don't have to forget everything. It's not, we're going to talk about that in the next point. It's not wrong to be wise in the world's standards. But he's saying don't be deceived. You need to switch your metric of success to godly wisdom. See, I, I, I love 
I love being around people who can fix everything. I love being around uh, people who know stuff. However, that is not what God's called us to do. See, instead of seeing your uh, ability to be a great entrepreneur, instead of seeing your ability as, as, a, as a man to provide, instead of seeing your ability as a mother to be able to work, cook, and keep a clean house, instead of seeing your ability uh, to make good grades or whatever it may be, that's not where you find your worth. You find your worth in what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And so if you want to be wise, you have to be a fool according to the world. And that is the first thing that I see in this text, is that godly wisdom begins when you become a fool to the world. Godly wisdom begins when you become a fool to the world. I read it earlier uh, in Proverbs chapter 9, I'm going to read it again. He says in, in, in Proverbs 9, 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Up until about two weeks ago, I'm still a little fuzzy on what does it mean to fear the Lord. I heard that for the first time when I was 15 years old. That was 15 years ago. Wow. And I learned, I'm like, man, fear the Lord. Awesome. You're supposed to be afraid of him. Then I heard a sermon. Not, it's not a, you're not afraid of him. It's, it's, and so like all my life, I've kind of gone back, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And as I was prepping for this sermon, <clears throat> it finally really did become clear to me. There's a book called uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's written by a man named Ed Welch. And Ed says that fear, I'm summarizing him a little bit, but... <clears throat> Fear is allowing someone or something to influence, dictate, or control your actions or attitude, okay? So fear <clears throat> is allowing someone or something to influence, dictate, or control your actions and attitudes. I know that's got a lot of qualifiers to it, but I think it's really helpful. And so what happens when you have, if you've ever heard fear of man, or maybe you've heard people-pleasing or peer pressure, Right, when your friends are telling you to do something and you know it's not right, but what is it? You let them influence, dictate, or control your actions. That's called the fear of man. It's very biblical. A lot of people have struggled with it. At members meeting, we're going to talk about this for our devotion time. But so fear is allowing someone to control you. And so when the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that's it. That's the beginning of wisdom, is allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to dictate, influence, and control your actions and attitudes no matter what. And as, as Ed Welch talks in his book, it says, the fear of the Lord is seeing God bigger than any other situation of your life. So God is bigger than your employer. He's bigger than your spouse. He's bigger than your children. He's bigger than that bully. He's bigger than the mean kid in class. Uh, that's the same thing. I don't know why I just repeated myself. But he's bigger than whatever it is you're facing. And so to fear the Lord is to let the Lord influence, dictate, or control your actions and attitudes in every aspect of your life. Guys, I hope that you're like, I hope your brains are just exploding right now. I just explained the fear of the Lord for you. This has befuddled me for 15 years, and I finally figured it out in one chapter of a book. Wow. And so it, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying 
if you want to become wise, become a fool. Why? Why? Why are we a fool? Again, in chapter 2, he says that the, the Jews want to have signs. The Jews will say they believe that Jesus is the Messiah if he will give them enough signs. And the Greeks say that they will believe that Jesus is the Messiah if they can prove that it's wise. And Paul says, but they get Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. God's not, God wants you to have faith that this is all real. And there's good reason to have that faith. But anyways, this is kind of like all bringing together that the beginning of godly wisdom, or godly wisdom begins when you become a fool to the world. That means that you see Christ, or God, as bigger than anything else in your life, okay? This is more important than, again, your business success, your marriage success, your family success, your relationships, whatever it is, it needs to be dictated by God. And so what we saw in Proverbs 9 is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all begins. Once you get that understood, you can begin to grow in godly wisdom. Chapter 9 of Proverbs is about Mrs. Wisdom versus Mrs. Folly. It's literally two different paragraphs of the exact same scenarios and how wisdom acts in the scenario and how foolishness acts in that scenario. Read Proverbs 9 today. It's a great chapter. But it it presents you with choices. And then as you zoom out, the whole book of Proverbs is determined and dominated by this one word that means the way. And so Proverbs is a book of ways. There's one way that is wise that leads to life. There is one way that seems good to man, but its end is death. And so what we see all throughout the book of Proverbs is that we have a choice to make. We can choose wisdom that leads to life, or we can choose worldly wisdom, which leads to death. Okay? The beautiful thing that Jesus says about himself, we're going to tie this back in, okay? The beautiful thing Jesus says about himself, John 14, 6, say it if you know it, I am the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. He is the fulfillment of all wisdom. Why can't we get, why does worldly wisdom not get us right with God? Because we're sinners. So what do we need? He says, if you want to be wise, become a fool, which means to believe the gospel. Jesus said this about himself. I am the way. If you want to know the way of wisdom, it is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And so Jesus is the way, the truth, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father but through him. Guys, when Paul says to become a fool, he is reminding you to believe what he just wrote to them about, which is the gospel, that Jesus Christ is God. He was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life, okay? Come on, somebody. You can't do that. I can't do that. Jesus did it for us, and he willingly went and was, and was arrested. He was betrayed. He was brutally beaten and then murdered on the cross, and he, he said, I lay my life down. Why? Because I can pick it back up. And so Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he rose, and then he says, come follow me, and I will give you rest. Work with me. Labor with me. 
And so this is what Paul is saying. He says, if you guys church in Corinth, and now go back to Corinth in your mind, and they are battling, they're, they're trying to get all this worldly Greek wisdom and act like they're somehow, like they're blending Greek wisdom with Jesus, and it's really ugly and doesn't make any sense. And, and Paul is saying to them, church, listen, if you want to be wise, if you want to be somebody, believe in the gospel and then be wise in God's eyes. Be wise in God's eyes. Now, why is this so hard for the Corinthians? Some of the best plays, some of the best books, some of the best philosophers came out of their culture. They have been slaves. The majority of people in Corinth, as we've talked about before, are slaves and freed men. There's a, a handful of very wealthy people, but the majority, this is their first chance at freedom. This is their first chance to actually become somebody. And so they're excited. They get to move to Corinth. They get to start their own businesses. They're growing. Most of them got good money. Or they're, they're working. There's an honest wage. They're not slaves anymore. And then Paul the apostle comes in, preaches the gospel. They get saved. And now there's this war. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be wise in the world's eyes. And Paul says, if you want to be wise, then become a fool. Because your worldly wisdom will not achieve for you salvation. It won't achieve for you redemption. It won't achieve for you anything. So you could imagine this, this war in their soul. They want to be somebody. But in the kingdom of God, to be somebody, you've got to be nobody. And we see this in our own day, don't we? We see this with business practices that are unethical. We see this with people taking promotions that they don't want for fear of losing their position, knowing that they don't have time to actually take that promotion because it's going to hurt their family. We see this in our world as people are afraid to fear the Lord because they don't want to lose this worldly wisdom. They want to lose this worldly standing, this status. So we are still at war with these two things. But what I want to say to you is that if your attitude and actions are influenced, controlled, and dictated by anything other than the Lord, then you're not being wise in your faith. This is worldly wisdom that will lead you to distraction. And so I want to encourage you, change your metric of success to godly wisdom. Now look with me in the next passage. We're going to look at <clears throat> verse 19 through 20. It says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness, with God, since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. Now, before we <clears throat> jump into these two Old Testament verses that have been quoted, I'm going to take a chance to do two tangents, okay? One is to plug my preaching class. So we're starting in June, how to preach and teach the Bible. Now, you may think, well, I'm not a preacher or a teacher. Do you have people in your life that you have an influence over? Well, then you are a teacher and a proclaimer of God's word. And so this isn't just for preachers, okay? This is for anyone, man, child, doesn't, or man, child, man, woman, child. Women, you're not allowed, sorry. Man, woman, and child, uh, not really the child. But men and women, you're welcome to come 
That's going to begin in June, and we're going to go through eight weeks. You're going to actually write your own sermon or your own lesson, and it's going to be geared towards whether you're going to be mainly teaching at your dinner table, maybe at a Bible study, or maybe you will have a pulpit ministry somewhere. And so anyways, we want to equip you for that. And so I wanted to take a time to shamelessly plug that class that's happening this summer. The other thing I want to make a disclaimer in is that it's okay to seek worldly wisdom. It's okay. It's actually probably good. The issue is where you find your worth, okay? So let, let me just remind you who Paul the Apostle is who writes, who writes this. In Philippians 3, he gives us his resume. He is well decorated in the faith. He was trained in the strictest sect of Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee. He was from the perfect Jewish families. He was an expert in the law, meaning that in his young ages, he could destroy you in an argument of faith. Now, he was not a Christian. This was a Jewish guy. He actually ended up, that's why it's, he's very smart, but yet he hadn't arrived at godly wisdom because when we find him in the book of Acts, he's killing Christians. And then he becomes to be the greatest church planter in the Bible. Praise God for redemption. But he writes to Timothy in, first, in 2 Timothy 3, and he says, Timothy, when you come visit me, please bring my cloak. Bring my cloaks with you. He says, also bring my books, and especially the parchments. Okay? So as, as you read this Paul saying, if you want to be wise, be a fool. You don't need worldly wisdom. I think some of us sometimes can be like, oh, well, I don't have to, then I don't really need to, there's no reason for me to grow in my wisdom. I don't need to read books. I don't need to hone any of my skills. I don't need to learn anything new. That's how I felt about fixing my vehicle. That's fine. Mom and dad are always going to pay for it. I don't need to learn how to do any mechanic. Then I had to start paying for my own mechanicing problems. And that's why I found, and praise God, there's several mechanically minded people in this church. I appreciate you so much. But it's not a good Christian stance to just be lazy. That's what I'm trying to get at. Now, that's not the point of this text. But the Corinthians lived in a hyper-wise culture. We do not live in that culture. We live in a culture that hates reading, a culture that thinks learning is stupid. Uh, you don't need a degree. Like, I, it's so funny. I grew up in a place in Texas that was like, if you don't have a college degree, you're not worth anything. That's hilarious. So I went to East Texas to get my degree, and they were like, boy, you don't need no degree. Just work hard, boy. You know, and like, so I grew up in a place that everyone had degrees and used their brains to pay their bills. And then I moved and got my degree at a culture where everyone used their bodies to pay their bills. And I think they paid them better than the people with their brains. But it's just like these two cultures like hated each other. Like, you can't work to make money. I'm like, uh, have you talked to a welder? You know, and then the welders are like, you don't need no dang degree. It's like, okay. So that's all I wanted to do was make the disclaimer that the Bible says, I will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? And so it's okay to grow. And I don't want anyone here like, oh, maybe I should drop out of college. No, no, don't do that. Maybe, but probably not. I just wanted to give the disclaimer that he's not, Paul is not steering his people away from being wise, He's saying that your worth is not found in your wisdom. Your worth is found in your faith in Jesus Christ, okay? And so I just wanted to be very clear with that, okay? But now, back to the passage at hand. He quotes two passages, and he says, or sorry, let me back up. I didn't even say my point. I'm struggling. My bad. 
Wisdom of the world is not the finish line. That's what we see when he says he catches the crafty, or he catches them in the craftiness, and the thought and the wisdom of the world is futile. The reasonings of the wise are futile. What we recognize here is what the Corinthians couldn't get, and that's that wisdom of the world is not the finish line. It's not some goal at which you attain it that God loves you more. <clears throat> and so he quotes two passages, so let's look at those. Because any time an author brings into their letter an Old Testament passage, or any passage for that matter, we're needing to understand why he did that. And so he quotes Job fifteen thirteen, and it says, He traps the wise in their craftiness so that the plans of the deceptive are quickly brought to an end. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, as I prepped for this, I was reading the commentary and I learned this. I had no clue. <clears throat> but it, this is giving the imagery of a hunter trapper. And he says, he traps them in the craftiness of their minds. So if you've ever, uh, if you've ever tried to be, if you've ever been out in the woods, what you, where do you not usually find wildlife? Out in the open, completely exposed and vulnerable. Maybe in Yellowstone, because that's not the real world, okay? But like if you're hunting, you know, the antelope that you see in Barnum, that's not real, okay? Trust me, I've hunted them. They don't act like that. Uh, they're not that smart, but they're smarter than the ones here. So like, when, if you're trying to go trap a rabbit, you wouldn't put a snare in the middle of a walkway. Like, you wouldn't just do it in the middle of an open field. What you would look for is you would look for a game trail. You would, and that game trail would lead you somewhere sketchy, right? They don't want to be out in the open. They don't want a coyote to be able to come grab them. If you're trying to catch a coyote, there's, there's, I don't know about trapping, but I know enough to try and make this illustration. That you're going to want to be smart, and what are you going to be trying to do? where is this animal itself going to go, right? And so as I've watched a, a video on trapping, sometimes you put some sticks in the ground to kind of block any other path, and you see the already natural path going through the bush, and so you set your snare right there because you want to use the craftiness of this animal to funnel it right into your trap. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what God does, <laughs> with worldly wisdom, is you might think you're outsmarting God, but God knows every move you're going to make, and that's how he catches you. That's why if you've ever been in a moment where God just keeps catching you, like, how did, I thought I was good at sinning. I keep getting caught. He keeps knowing. It's like, yeah, he's using your own worldly wisdom to know exactly where you're going to be. And then he quotes, he quotes another one. He quotes uh, Psalm 94. And it says that the Lord knows the thoughts of mankind, that they are futile. That word means useless and vain. This is why God is saying to let your metric of success be godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. For if worldly wisdom is your finish line, you will never arrive. What's the limit? If after you've read a certain amount of books or you've gotten a certain amount of degrees, is there just like this certain special amount of love that God drops down on you? No, absolutely not. And so worldly wisdom is not our finish line because in our best attempts, we can get caught in our craftiness and the reasonings of the wise are futile. And so God is, 
or Paul in this letter is, is pointing out that God is trying to protect the Corinthians from something. What? I remember my friend Landon, uh, Landon and Megan, some, most of you know them, they came up, they're the photographer and videographer that came up and, uh, and did a bunch of photo work for us. Uh, he's a phenomenal runner. And uh, when we all graduated college, we went to Chattanooga, Tennessee to run this uh, half marathon through the mountains. And Landon came through at the halfway point, and uh, he's in second place. And I'm excited for him. He's he just going to run. He didn't think he was going to win, but now that he realizes he's going to win, he tries. And at one point, he takes the lead while he's in the mountains. We don't see this. But he was running against a local. He was running against a local who's sponsored in Chattanooga and has run that race before. And so the race markings at the very end of the race were very poorly done, and Landon took a wrong turn. He quickly noticed it, turned around, only to see the local guy turn at the right place and win the race. Talk about frustrating. He even admitted to him, he's like, hey man, you won that race, I'm sorry. That's just, you know, that is what it is. The difference, though, is that for the Corinthians, the road has been marked very clearly, and they're just barreling over God's word. God is saying, turn here, I have something better for you, and they're like, no, we're going to hop that hurdle and run to our own made-up finish line that never will exist. God is warning them from something so that he can give them something better. So what's that something better? Look with me now at verse 21 through 23. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a very old version of the new catechisms that we're doing. The first question is a famous one. You may have heard it. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. So what is the purpose of the Corinthians' life? The purpose of the Corinthian church is to know God and enjoy him and so this is what Paul is trying to teach. He's like, Paul tells him, listen, don't, don't boast about spiritual leaders. This is, you're missing it. You're missing it, guys. Listen, listen, listen. Because what they're doing is they're parceling out people to make themselves feel better. And so some of them love Paul's teaching. And they jump, I follow Paul. Well, then these other ones are like, well, I follow Apollos, his predecessor. And then these ones are like, I follow Peter. He's probably never been here, but I heard that he's an apostle. I'm going to follow him instead. And then the other ones are like, well, I just follow Christ. Those are the Baptists. If you were wondering, if you were wondering who the, I follow, those are the self-righteous Baptists. That's who we are. We believe that we're always right about everything, okay? It's okay. Winners are sometimes arrogant. But anyways, and so what's happening is that they are parceling out the blessings of God. They're saying, I follow this way, I follow this way, and I follow this way. And that's how God feels about it right there. He gets really upset. No. So this, Paul is warning them. He's like, guys, what are you doing? Don't, 
don't bring these, the leaders were not on board with this, by the way. They, they got signed up for an excellent, they didn't run in, okay? And so this is what's going on, and Paul tells them, don't do this. They're taking the wisdom based on a, perf, a, a particular leader, and then they're saying, if you're with me and this leader, you're wise. If you're with me and this leader, you're wise. And because they saw this accumulation of wisdom as the goal, it's the finish line that doesn't exist. And Paul is actually going to turn their argument about them. Remember, they said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He says, and another way to say that is, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. And so he now writes to them as he's concluding his argument, and he says, everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or the life or death or things present, things to come, uh, we belong to you. We are servants for you. See, they were mistaking the gospel. God gave them salvation. He enriched them, and he, he grew them. They repented of sin. They, they renounced lifestyles that were sinful and, and abhorrent to the Lord, and they were growing, and there was all this awesome stuff happening, and then they started to drift. And Paul is reminding them, he says, you've got it wrong. You don't belong to me. I belong to you. I'm your servant. And why am I your servant, church? Because you belong to Christ. And so as they've been clamoring for status and approval and for popularity, Paul just simply reminds them, you don't belong to me. I belong to you, and you belong to Christ. A reminder of where they stand spiritually. And he's telling them that they're missing out on everything. Because it's not just their leaders, but the world, life, death, things past, things present, or things present or things to come. Paul turns their argument on them and he's saying, you guys are missing the mark big time. Paul says this a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says to them, <clears throat> All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Every promise that God has ever made to his people is yes in Christ. So parse that out the opposite way. Every promise of God that exists for the good of humanity will never come true for you if you're not in Christ. That's why Paul says this, if you want to be wise, then become a fool. Believe what Jesus has done for you, and then let the Lord influence, dictate, and control your actions and attitudes, because that, that right there is where you get access to every single good thing that God could ever give, is in Christ. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of it. He says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. Okay, everything that you could ever need or want or get from God comes from Christ. And so Paul is reminding them that in Christ, yes, is the answer to every promise of God. They're trying to go out and around Christ to get good from God. And he's saying, you're missing it, you're missing it, you're missing it. I can best explain it this way. I've got some friends, my, my mom and dad, and a couple, I think Lance and Brianna know them, <clears throat> there's a family, and their names were Chalk and Abby, or Charlie and Abby Watson. Abby has 
uh, gone on to be with the Lord since then, but they were members of the church that I pastored in Texas while I was in college. And I remember that uh, Chalk had a really cool house and some really nice land, and, and when I started pastoring there, he was immediately generous to me. And Listen, if any of those members are watching right now, I, I loved everyone in that church, almost. But we had some great families in there, but I just wanted to tell this story. I remember when I first went to Chalk's house, he said, uh, he said, hey, anything you need, this place is your place. You make it your home. And I was like, okay. You know, everyone always says that, but you, nah, I'm okay. Let me tell you. Chalk and Abby. Now, Chalk has married a new lady named Mary, or Betty Jane, and she's awesome too, and she's, she has the same culture that I still go stay at their house every time I'm in East Texas. But Chalk and Abby, and now Betty, they had this big old jar of M&Ms, and I'd get two handfuls, because I got small hands, it's like one handful, but I'd get two handfuls of M&Ms, and I loved this peanut M&M jar they had. And then they had a, they had a, oh my gosh, I can see it, I can taste it. They had this huge counter filled with Pop-Tarts, Little Debbie snacks, the, all the greatest cancer-causing things you could ever put in your body. It's so good. They're so, like, they're in their 80s, and they're still healthy. I have no idea how this is happening. But anyways, he didn't just have sweets, though. He had a lot of guns. He had a lot of four-wheelers. He had three ponds stocked with catfish. He had a lot of land to do all this on. And so I was kind of hesitant at first. But after a while, I got comfortable and I said, okay, mi casa es su casa. Your house is my house. I'm in here, brother. And I remember one time I was, I was pastoring there over the summer. Ashley was gone and away um, at, at a summer camp working. And my Wi-Fi went out at the house I was living at. And so I called up Chalk. He's in his late 70s. I'm like, Chalk, can I come over? I got to FaceTime my girlfriend. He's like, you know, your room's ready for you, buddy. Door's unlocked. And I walked in there, and I FaceTimed her. I think I ended up spending the night over there because I was too tired to go home. But I brought up dozens of college students to come ride four-wheelers, to fish. We shot guns. It was awesome. We would set up watermelons out on the middle of his property and just blow these watermelons up. It was so much fun to be at Chalk's house. And here's, here's what I learned is he had all this stuff, and he couldn't play with it all. So when he said, my home is your home, all this I have, I'd like for you to enjoy. It took me a while to finally feel confident enjoying that. I didn't want to show favoritism. And it wasn't favoritism, it was just an awesome hookup. But man, what I learned is that to him, I was family. And because I was family, everything he had was available to me. See, that's what God was trying to do in the church in Corinth. As he was saying to them, I'm inviting you to know me better, to enjoy me, to enjoy what I have to offer for you. And you want to know what the Corinthians did? They sprinted. I got the gun room. I got gun rooms mine. And then the rest of them sprinted out the back door and jumped on the four-wheelers. The four-wheelers are mine. And then the other ones ran to the ponds and they, everyone just like sequestered themselves and they were like, okay, well, shoot, I got all these guns, but someone else has the land. And I got all the four-wheelers, but I can't go to the ponds. Why? Because there's division in the church now. The blessings that the Father has for us are now being hoarded by a certain group of people. And they're like, well, you go enjoy that, we'll have this. And what's crazy is that none of it's fun without the other.
Church, when we forget that knowing God and enjoying Him forever is our finish line, that's what happens. And the reality of this passage is that God is the finish line and godly wisdom is the path. Paul is trying to make this abundantly clear to his people. He says, guys, the reason that you're worldly, the world, you're fleshly, the, wor- the, the reason that you're worldly, the reason that you're fleshly is because you are not knowing and enjoying God. And you're not knowing and enjoying God because you're focused on worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. So go back to the gospel. Let Jesus be the one that rules your life and your attitude and your actions. And then realize that this is my father's house. And you get to come in. Every room is yours. Every meal is yours. Every toy is yours. And the father is delighted for you to enjoy it. That's the offer that we get isn't that glorious? And this is as bad as it ever gets for us, church. This world, these problems, this cancer diagnosis, this heart problem, this problem with our family, this marriage, or sorry, this divorce, this, hopefully you don't hate your marriage, but this divorce, this financial burden, this pain, this is as bad as it ever gets because once we die or Jesus comes back, guys, that's the end of it all. It's only good from there. So church, let us remember that God is our finish line and godly wisdom is the path to get there. Now, again, for anyone who's yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, none of that's true for you. This is as good as your life will ever get. If you don't know me, if you don't know enough, maybe you're visiting, I don't know, maybe you're watching live stream. We have three kids, and these ages are almost, okay? But ages five, four, and two. Pray for us. They play a lot in the floor, okay? Now, magnetiles used to be their jam. They love magnetiles. If you don't know what that is, it's like magnetic Legos, but way cooler, okay? But right now, it's uncooked pasta, and uh, they pour it out all over the floor. It's a glorious joy that I love. Uh, but they have a whole bunch of pots and pans and utensils, and they, they love to put all the uncooked pasta, pasta in the, you know, they make their soup is what they call it. They make their soups. And this usually goes on pretty well for a while, but at some point, you know what happens, right? Someone makes an Oklahoma land grab. One kid decides, this is my pasta. So they scurry it all up, and usually you heard Annie screaming just a minute ago. That's what you'll start hearing. That is the indicator that a land grab is going on, okay? And so you hear, or you hear Michael scream, and he puts his fists up like this, and it cracks me up because he's got anger problems already. Um, But they make a grab. They want all these magnetiles. They want all this pasta. They grab some spoons. They grab a bowl. And then you're like, hey, 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 what's going on? And they'll take off, right? And they'll just hurdle. They can huddle over everything. They're like, these are mine. And, and you go over there to talk to them. And you say, hey, what, what? what's going on? It's, it's, what's crazy, it's really sad to see it. Because in their foolishness, one, they ruined a the game. The game was going great. It was a lot of fun. They ruined it 
by their selfishness, okay? But then you ask them, what did you do that for? Well, I wanted to build my own house. I wanted to build with these, these ones. I wanted to have this bowl. Okay. And the really sad part is you look at what they've stolen, look at what they've accumulated. It's not even enough to build a good house. It's not even enough to really fill one of the bowls. So in their foolishness, in their attempt at accumulating enough, as a father, I can look in and go, man, that's not even close to enough. You would have had so much more if you'd have just come over here where I'd put all the toys. And it breaks my heart to know that there's somebody here in this room, most likely, or watching, that has yet to turn from living life how they want to to living life how God wants them to. And it, and it breaks my heart because if Jesus were to come back today or you were to die today, God the Father would walk up to you and say, what is it you got there? So I was I'm just trying to accumulate this stuff so I could do it my own way. And he would say, that's not even close to enough. That's not even close to enough of what I require to get into heaven. So what does God require? God requires that you would leave behind all that you've been accumulating and go back to where the gifts were given in the first place. God says there's no way you could accumulate enough to earn my love, to work your way into heaven, to pay for your own sin debt. He says, but son, daughter, I've already offered that to you. His name is Jesus. He came, he lived, he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you would go back, that then, you'll be enough. But on your own, it's truly an unimpressive pile of accomplishments that will get you nowhere. The scripture says, for all those who stand before God without Christ, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so I would beg you here this morning, I'm going to ask Ashley and Julianne to come as we prepare to sing. I would beg you this morning, would you please walk away from what you've accumulated? Would you please walk away from your best attempts at building your own life? The scripture says that unless the Lord helps, the builder builds in vain. So you might be trying to build your own life, you might be trying to build your own kingdom, your own empire, but if it's not built on the foundation of Jesus, then when God comes inspecting, he's going to say, that's not enough. And how foolish would you feel to be sitting in a pile with a tiny little bit of accomplishments knowing that over here where the father started the game there was just tons and tons of what you needed to build the life God had for you and so I would, I would beg you can you leave your pile behind today 
If that's you, if you're saying, yeah, I want to leave behind my accomplishments, I want to leave behind my accumulations, I want to become a fool to the world. I want to believe what Jesus did for me. And then I want to live a life where it's the Lord who influences and dictates what I do throughout my days. If that's you, every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. But you have to humble yourself. You got to take whatever shame comes with it. Maybe your friends will make fun of you. Maybe you lose some friends. Maybe you'll lose some family. But what you gain, it's enough. So bow with me and pray. If, if that's you today, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching on live stream, would you pray? And by doing so, you're walking away from the pile of your accomplishments and letting the Father give you his good gifts. Pray with me. God, I don't have enough. I've toiled and labored, but I can't forgive my own sins. I can't earn my, earn my way to heaven. I can't earn your love. But even while I'm a sinner, you showed your love to me by sending Christ to die on the cross and to rise from the dead. I believe what Jesus did for me. I want to fear you, Lord, and nothing else. I walk away from my accomplishments and I come to, your fa to the Father's house. I am yours, God. I turn from my sin and I will follow Jesus. Now, if you prayed that with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that, there should be a card nearby you. I'd love for you to fill that out and let us know because we want to help welcome you to the family. We want to help you walk in this new life. While the, while the ladies sing, our pastors will be in the back. If you need prayer, if you need to talk, we'll be back there. Come to us while, while we sing this next song. Let me pray for our church and then let's sing. Father. Oh, Lord, help us to fear you. As I think about my own life, God, there's so many things that I have feared for so many years. None of them are bigger than you. So help me to fear you and let you influence my every decision, my actions, my attitudes. Let us be a church that fears the Lord and is wise. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Please stand.